Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the author's books and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, in for Jason Gale. And I'm joined this week by Tyler Ross, canon lawyer for the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. Mr. Ross is a graduate of Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. It was my privilege to direct his excellent thesis on Duns Scotus. He subsequently took his licentiate in canon law at the Catholic University of America. Now, like nearly all canonists employed in the diocese, Mr. Ross spends over 90% of his time on matters pertaining to marriage and nullity. But his interests range much more broadly, even into philosophy and theology in general. Disciplines in which canonists also receive some formal training. Today we'll be talking about the minor orders in the traditions of the apostolic churches. What were they? How are they used? How far back do they go? This discussion will provide background for a couple of future conversations we intend to have about Pope Paul VI, when he suppressed the minor orders in the Latin Rite and Pope Francis very recently in his motu proprio in which he opens the ministries of lector and acolyte to women, causing no shortage of commentary. Now, before we get started on that, don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe to our channel, select notifications, and of course, share this content with your friends. So right here at the beginning, I'd like to ask Mr. Ross, if he would introduce himself to our audience. Uh, our audience is probably not familiar with you. Sure. Well, you did a great job in what you've already done. Uh, but just briefly, I was uh, born and raised here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm a product of the Diocese of Knoxville. I went to Catholic schools, K through 12. Um, went to Aquinas College in just neighboring diocese in Nashville. Um, so I love the great state of Tennessee. <laughs> um, and since getting a job with the Diocese of Knoxville, like I said, my home diocese, I've actually had the privilege of uh, starting or helping to start our tribunal from the ground up. So we are, as far as I know, the only diocese in the United States uh, that at that time did not have a tribunal. There may be others out there, but I'm not aware of it. Yeah, I think there probably were others, but I, I wouldn't doubt it. But uh -huh. everyone I talked to in school both classmates and professors were like, oh, wow, I've never met anybody that did that. Um, um, so it's, uh, it's been a great joy a lot and a great sorrow sometimes because <laughs> starting these things is not always easy, but it's, it's, been, it's been really good. Um, our bishop uh, heeding the words of uh, Pope Francis and Benedict and John Paul II going back, um, the desire to have a tribunal in each diocese um, so heeding that desire, uh, calling upon priests of the diocese, um, really in a lot of ways, providentially, um, my desire to do canon law school coinciding with, uh, my bishop's desire to erect a diocesan tribunal. So for the past year and a half now, I've been helping to set that up. I started to be employed in September of 2019. Um, and then Rome officially erected our tribunal in July of 2020. So uh, 
timing wise, I've been, I've been with the diocese for a little over a year and a half and working uh, technically for a tribunal for the past seven, eight months. Yeah. So we can talk about a lot of bad things, right. That have happened in recent years. Um, There've been a few developments in the church that many people are not happy with, but but one thing that I personally think is a really good thing is the is the development of of these tribunals. The I think it was the right thing to call for more tribunals because there were Absolutely. dioceses that didn't have them. Not only right, I don't know how many in the United States. I I, I couldn't say, but I'm pretty sure that less than a handful sure wasn't the only one. But I, I know throughout the world, many dioceses don't have tribunals, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but in the West in particular, where marriage is such a disaster, marriage is in such a disastrous state, which is bad. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, though, it's a, you know, it's an illness that we're suffering from that needs some kind of remedy. And, right. um, and you know, the church doesn't, the church doesn't recognize um, divorce as a solution to this problem. The only the only thing to do is to examine the marriage and determine uh, whether it was null or valid, right? right? That's the only solution we've really got. Yep. And yep. so if we're going to, if that's our only solution, we need people who know how to diagnose it. Who are available. Yeah. One of the things we throw around a lot is that uh, justice is served best close to home. So uh-huh. um, for many reasons. But right. Oh, this is a, it's another. Imagine. I mean, another reason why this development was so good actually is that very point. Is yeah, many people were having their cases heard by tribunals far removed from them. Right. Yep. I mean, so think about a person living in Chattanooga, yep. whose case for nullity is being heard in in Nashville. Right. Right. I mean, and that's actually like not too far. It used That's to be too far, right. It used to be sometimes that the forum of the respondent is where the case would be held. So if you've got uh, a person in Chattanooga in the Diocese of Knoxville and the respondent lived in Ottawa or wherever, Canada, um, the case could be uh, would be held in Ottawa. So the person petitioning the tribunal would have to contact Ottawa, Canada. <laughs> Yeah, and have correspondence with them, whether so, or not the respondent participated. Yeah, so I mean, I think for in the future, uh, it would be great. If, I would love to have uh, to do a, a conversation about about mar- marital nullity cases and a really interesting yeah. topic. And there's a lot to say. Yeah, and and I have some interesting um, I have some interesting anecdotes about mm. about um, you know students I had in the past who were Protestants and mm. wanted to hear their, one of their cases to be heard wow. by the Catholic church. It's, it's, yeah. it's really kind of an interesting thing. And yeah. there's a lot to talk about there, but today, yeah. today our topic is the minor orders. So, right. so first of all, um, what, when we talk about the minor orders, what are we talking about? Many people in our audience may not even have ever heard of them. Sure. Well, like as I was trained, always make distinctions. Right. So let's distinguish between minor orders and uh, major orders first. Yes. Um, the major orders historically, and we'll get into one of the minutia of this in a minute, but the major orders historically are what we know as uh, 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 bishop, priest, and deacon. Right. Um, so the, the sacrament, right, of holy orders, the major orders. Right. And this is, this is, so let me pause you there. This is the key. 
So this, when we say the major orders, we're talking about orders that are conferred um, through a sacrament. Yes, through right? the sacrament, through, sacrament. through the laying on of hands. Yeah. Okay, go right. on. So we find historically, right? If, uh, if, if you know nothing and all you do is just go back and read the history books, we find the existence of um, other functions uh, that are connected to the major orders, to um, uh, bishop, priest, and deacon, but are not seen as sacraments. And those we would call the minor orders. Um, in the Latin church, in which myself and you belong, to which we belong, um, there are historically uh, five slash four, and that's what we'll get into in a second, minor uh -huh. orders. <clears throat> Um, so we have the porter, we have lector, exorcist, acolyte, and subdeacon. And traditionally, these were all seen as stepping stones sort of on the way to priesthood. Um, some people, you know, depending on where in the world you are at any given time, uh, you may stop, you know, on, on a particular stepping stone. But traditionally, anyone who's going to be ordained a deacon and a priest went through all of these. Um, now, each of them had a different function, though. So porter, uh, the Latin uh, portus, port, porta, would be uh, a, a door, right? So mm -hmm. the porter is the one who's in charge of the door. He was given keys to uh, open and shut, you know, right? Um, he, his is the, the lowest function on the, on the gradation on, in the stepping stones. That was the first step. Uh, then you've got lector. And the lector is the one who uh, we might call that a catechist today. His role was more to um, expound the word, right? To uh, catechize the people, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. He was given um, uh, a Bible, the book of the gospel, something to that effect. Then you have the exorcist on the next rung up. And his goal, uh, his role, his responsibility was to perform minor exorcisms. Uh, so not major exorcisms, right? Major exorcisms are what we often think of when we hear the word exorcism, um, like in the movies, right? That's a, that's a major exorcism, but a minor exorcism would be deliverance prayers. So mm -hmm. um, that was his role. And the next stepping stone was the acolyte. And his, his role is now when we sort of transition to um, roles more so connected with service at the altar. So the acolyte um, in the picture I'm, uh, I have pulled up here, He's, he's holding a, uh, a thurible, so he's holding the incense. Um, he's holding some of the sacred vessels, right, uh, like the cruets. So his role is more connected with the altar. Um, he is to serve those at the altar. And then you have the subdeacon, and uh, his role is to proclaim the, the reading, uh, the, the epistle um, in the extraordinary form is, is the epistle. Uh, for the ordinary form, we would call it the second reading. Um, there was no Old Testament reading in the extraordinary form. So his role was to uh, chant the epistle. Um, and he actually wears a, a chasuble of some kind. Um, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not called a chasuble. It's not called a dalmatic. I don't know exactly what it is called. But he does wear um, that extra sort of more than just a cassock and circles. Right. So, formal vestment. Yeah. Formal vestment. Right. Um, and his is very much more closely connected to the service of the altar. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he's wearing the same uh, liturgical colors as the priest and the deacon. Um, he's handling the sacred 
vessels, um, that kind of thing. So those were uh, historically what you would find, at least in the Latin church, that sort of gradation of ministers, of orders, um, if you were to look back in the history books. Right. So I want to, um, I want to avoid like deeper metaphysical questions here. Um, but, but let's think for a minute about um, just canonically speaking, right? What does the, what does the distinction between, um, so you're saying somebody's a cleric and saying someone is a lay person, what, what historically has that meant? Different things at different times, as far as I'm aware. Um, I mean, specifically at a legal level. Right, at a legal level. I mean, it would mean things like certain ecclesial benefices, right? So rights to uh, remuneration. You get money from the church. You may be afforded um, cert uh, certain other goods of the church. Right, um, yeah. You know, and maybe a, conceivably the porter... I'm sorry, I was just gonna say the, the porter conceivably might be given a, a place to stay, right? Like if he's uh -huh. the guy who is in charge of the door, he may have a sort of rectory unto himself at the at the parish if that's his charge. Uh -huh. Kind of speculation, but right. So there, there are so there are rights that go along with yeah with these ministries, and and the idea is that um, you know once a person enters into this into this um, function. And the church recognizes him in a certain way, right? That that the church is agreeing that they're they have certain obligations, right? Mm -hmm. The church has certain obligations. They can't right. just they can't just you know toss them aside or something, right? right? Right. So so that's but that's very interesting because you know we today have attached to the word cleric. Uh, we. We see it as synonymous with minor, with, with major orders. Right. With but historically, sacrament. actually, there's a distinction in the terminology, right? That this, right. being a cleric doesn't necessarily mean that one is in major orders. Right. 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 So th this is part of the ambiguity, right? With, with, with this discussion, because, because a person is recognized as having entered the clerical state. Mm -hmm. Yep. Whereas today we enter the clerical state at diaconate uh, it used to be uh at tonsure yeah. which we didn't mention but is not technically a minor order so it depends on how we talk about these things and this is kind of where the language matters right some people consider tonsure uh to be as far as i'm aware some kind of uh, entrance into um minor orders but not an order unto itself uh -huh. um entrance into the clerical state in some places not so much in other places or having certain rights with tonsure yeah um in some places tonsure others dude, not. doesn't actually have any particular function right i mean he doesn't no. do anything he doesn't do anything he just has a bald head right i mean that's or it some some of his hair is cut off in some, some way of his hair is cut fashion. off yeah and uh but he's positioned in such a way that he's now on a trajectory to enter into these other things mm-hmm He's so connected in some way with the major orders, with yeah. the sacrament. Now, these go back a really long way, actually, right? And maybe not all right. these specific ones, but but different ones. And we have different, um, in different rites of the church, they don't all have the same, the same uh, minor orders, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I want to think about this idea of being a porter, for example, right? 
um, or being a lector, okay? Very interesting thing about these particular functions historically, we can't relate to this today. The idea that there's some special function to the guy who opens and closes the door. Mm -hmm. But when you realize that in the primitive church, and actually even later than that, in the early church, prior to you know the um, end of the period of open persecution, right? So before the, up until about the Council of Nicaea or so, right? Uh, there was real danger of being persecuted for the profession of the Christian faith, and um, you know there, the and and the Eucharist was understood by the government as cannibalism. Right. Uh, this is this is actually what Justin Martyr is accused yep. of. Yep. And he he interestingly enough, precisely because the Church does and has always taught that uh, the Eucharist is the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, Justin Martyr couldn't actually weasel out of that accusation, right? He got right. convicted of it anyway. Yep. Um, and so, you know, he, he makes the whole bloodless sacrifice thing, argument and everything, and he's trying to make the point that, that cannibalism, as is understood under the law, involves killing someone and eating him in pieces, and that's not what's happening here. But, um, but in any case... He, he's he's convicted yep. right so um the so what this the whole point here is who gets in the church and who doesn't who has to leave at a certain time and who can stay is that's a serious determination yeah right and even today we have in our rituals for um for christian initiation in the latin rite one of the things that we do is we have a we have a ritual for um, for receiving the creed. Now, in the in the ancient church, that was the point at which you were permitted to remain. Right, you were permitted to remain. Right. So, before once you got to the creed, you had to go. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And uh, and the porter was one of the people. He actually had an important job. Because he he told people, okay, it's time for you guys to leave. Yep. You guys can come in. You guys can stay. You guys have to yep. go. He's akin to what we might call today an usher. Sort of, yeah. But sort but of. with but whether today an usher helps you find a seat, welcomes yeah. you at the door. Yes. There's no idea that you can't stay. Right. Right. In the Latin um, church. So there was a charge that belonged to this guy. Yep. It was a responsibility. People's lives literally depended on it. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it is an interesting thing. It's an important, right. important function. And then carrying on, though, from there, after Christianity was legalized, and then especially after it was made the official religion, the porter still exercised this role of, um, you know, guarding the door or, or standing watch over the door uh -huh. uh, because it pertains to those in orders to watch the doors of the church, right? Like uh -huh. they are the ones who guard the house of God, whether or not there's people trying to kill you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's, it's God's house and they're the ones given charge over it. Right. Right. So, so just to highlight that connection with, again, the minor order, the connection with the minor order to the major order. Yeah. So let's go back. Um, how, how, 
early do we see indications of the minor orders? Yeah. So to my research, uh, the earliest we can find of anything mentioning the roles of the minor orders uh, was in the year 252. And uh, we'll unpack it. So I'll, I'll read a quote. This is from Pope Cornelius to uh, Fabius of Antioch, Bishop, uh, Bishop Fabius of Antioch. Uh, he has, Pope Cornelius says, he, speaking about Novation, which we can talk about in a second, uh, Novation knew that there were in this church of Rome, and then he uh, enumerates them, 46 priests, seven deacons, seven subdeacons, 42 acolytes, and 52 exorcists, lectors, and porters. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, definitely the first thing to note is the year, 252. What, uh, what can we say about that year? Yeah, well, it's pretty darn early. It's pretty so darn this early. Is before, this is before the Council of Chalcedon, yep. before the Council of Ephesus, yep. before the Council of Nicaea. Yep. I mean, it's early. It's early. And um, so we're, we're talking about, what, 252. I mean, this is before there's any kind of formal, there's no definition of rights. Yeah. By rights here, I mean R I T. Yes. E, right? R -I -T, right. Yes, yeah. Uh, so I'm talking about there's no there's no real distinction here in any formal way between between the East an Eastern rite of the church and a Latin rite of the church, right? Right. There are no um, major divisions. There have been a few heresies here and there, but like yep. nothing like any kind of great yep. schism that divides the church at some cataclysm in some cataclysmic yep. way, right? And before nothing. Christianity was legal. Before Christianity, that's right. Before Christianity was legal, um, so people are still being persecuted. In fact, right. Novation, who's mentioned here, right, was the first antipope, and and the reason that Novation, um, the reason that Novation actually uh, got into that situation of being the first antipope, was because after a persecution where the see was left vacant. Uh, he was kind of ushered in very quickly by a subset of the population, right? So it wasn't recognized as being a, uh, a real quorum of uh, people lawfully charged with electing the successor. Um, so, you know, it was sort of like a, a, a clandestine sort of move to put him in the chair. Mm -hmm. And he was a... Um, you know, he was a he was a North African uh, rigorist in sort of the line, in line with Tertullian, for example, right? Um, and he was really super super strict about about who could, but whether the church even could forgive people, right? Absolve people of apostasy, which is kind of weird, right? But yeah, they they actually held the view that the church can't can't actually absolve that sin. Uh, anyway, so he was, we eventually dealt with that, but yeah. we're talking about here just after the period of novation. Um, and it's still when the church is, when Christianity is not legal. So it's very early. Right. Right. Now going back a little bit further, right. We don't see mention specifically right. of these minor orders. We don't find them in the letter of Clement. 
to the Corinthians in which he does talk about the major orders. Yep. We don't see it in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, yep. uh, where he too talks about the major orders. Yep. So somewhere we have to believe somewhere between Ignatius, who died roughly 107, and this particular letter in, what was it, 252, right? 252. Um, somewhere in that period developed the minor orders, right? Yep. There's our window. That, that's our window. Yep. We could say, I think, right, that if you mentioned, you mentioned to me before that, that this, um, we've got a catalog. Yeah. The idea right? that this is, they're, they're numbered, right? These are not, they're not estimates, right? Specifically 46 priests, right? Seven subdeacons, 42 acolytes and 52 uh, exorcist lectors and porters. They lump all those together. But the, these are not estimates. Like they knew who these people were. Um, it was, yes. uh, we can surmise, right, that this was a, um, a thing that had been in place for a while. This is something they were used to doing. Uh, so maybe to the point where even for them, they could say our tradition of, the minor orders they could refer to it as a tradition maybe that's yeah. a little bit of speculation I mean, but and and so i mean this is even and he's saying this is from the time of novation that novation took note of this yeah so um yep so in in less in less than 150 years time yeah you had the development of a tradition strong enough that by the time you get to 252 uh, or even or earlier than that, earlier right? Than you've that. got, you've got these lists, catalogs. We know we have names associated with it. Presumably. It's well documented. Yeah. And the other thing to note about it was that he's writing to uh, Bishop Fabius, who's in Antioch, which, as we know, is really far away from Rome. Right. It's you know, that's not a drive, right? Like yeah, in the ancient world, that's a big. That's yeah. a, in fact, okay, so putting it in context, Ignatius of Antioch, right? Yep, the letters exactly. we have from Ignatius of Antioch were written while he was en route from Antioch to Rome, where he was going to be executed. Yep. So he would stop at the various port cities along the way and meet with people. This was a long journey in the ancient yeah. world. It took a while for Ignatius. Yeah get from point a to point b right right so your point is right by saying this my point is that presumably again this is a little bit of a speculation but reasonable i think that pope cornelius is writing to bishop fabius as if fabius has some kind of knowledge of this thing called minor orders right yeah that, like we have these things in rome uh, and you know about them yeah, so, that seems to be the obvious, right? The obvious uh, presumption is that yeah. is that the audience, right? Cornelius' yep. audience yep. is familiar with the terminology. Yes, he knows the, the reference. Yeah, across which, great distances. Which exactly means, across great distances. Which means that we have a widespread practice, right? It's not just that we have a yep. tradition that has somehow been established inside of a period of 150 years, but 
but um, and, and likely did not arise independently from each other. There has right. to be some kind of connection between the two, uh, some common source or tradition that they're drawing on. Right, right. So, um, so we have every reason to believe. I mean, if I had to throw a dart at the board, right, and sort of pick a date where I think they, we probably saw the first uh, examples of something that somebody might call. What uh, in whatever terminology they would use at the time, yeah. uh, a minor order. Yeah, I would throw that dart. I would. I would aim for about. Personally, I would aim for about um, one fifty. That's that's where I'm. Okay. That's where I'm guessing you would hit because the hundred, a hundred year period, right, would allow yeah. for. That would allow for a pretty wide spread. When you think about it, right? How many generations is that? It's go go on an average. If you think about a generation of being about five, years. maybe yeah, four, five, five generations. Yeah. So you've got that gives time for it to grow and to spread uh, throughout right. the church to become right. highly developed enough that the this kind of conversation can happen. It seems to me. It seems to me that's a pretty reasonable estimate. Yeah, but and course, just the. Oh, sorry. We don't we don't know for sure, but right, right. A lot of it is speculation. Um, the other thing I think, final thing to note about uh, this little quote here, is where the letter is coming from and where it's going to, uh, contextually. So Rome, right, being the imperial capital city, uh-huh. the the it's the city, the eternal city. Not much more needs to be said about Rome, but Antioch. I remember learning in, uh, in my Eastern canon law class uh, taught by a Maronite uh, core bishop. He was likening Antioch at the time to New York City of today and mm-hmm. Rome to Washington, D.C., um, where Antioch would be like the cultural center, uh, perhaps the most populous city in the empire. Um, when you want to take the gospel somewhere, right? Like his, his analogy was if you, uh, if Jesus were to have become incarnate in modern day America, rather than uh, Israel way back when 2000 years ago, what are the first places we would take the gospel? Probably we would take them to uh, Washington, DC. We could say a lot of things about taking the gospel to DC, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, and to New York City, right? Perhaps Los Angeles as sort of like a West Coast version of New York City. But the idea uh, is that these are these are like the places where all the Christians are. Most of them, at least, um, they represent uh, certainly the two halves, in a sense of of the Christian world at that time. Rome being in the West and Antioch being in the East. Um, and yeah. especially as we remember where the uh, disciples were first called Christians. Now, I would want to argue, of course, that um, Alexandria was 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 a major, major place yeah. at this time, too. Right. Yeah. They had the library and yep. they had that. Yep. There was the whole, all the philosophical dialogue that was going on. Yep. But and you have the regard- Desert Fathers. But the point the point is the point is basically that Antioch is yeah. a very important city. Right. Um. And it, we know that it's very important, a very important city historically to Christianity, right? We we know from from the very tenor of the 
letters of Ignatius of Antioch, and and we know from from Acts from the we know from Acts of the Apostles for sure. We know from the but I'm saying with as far as you know the post New Testament period. Sure, sure, sure. We know from uh, the the role that those letters played in the life of the church, uh, how they were yeah. preserved, um, and even that people seem to have presumed to build upon them. There was a pseudo Ignatius and mm -hmm. people, people, uh, many scholars believe, you know, that we have different versions of, of those letters, right? And many scholars yeah. believe that people thought even to embellish them. That some, the figure of Ignatius of Antioch was so important mm -hmm. in, the, in, in the primitive church that, that we, you know, we, we can speculate with a great deal of uh, uh, confidence, right? That, right. that, that that was a very important place. Right. So this and dialogue between place. the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Antioch is one that is one that matters. And it probably tells us a great deal about what the, what the church looked like at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another one last thing too, is, um, you know, speaking of this concept of the minor orders uh, being present in various locations throughout the church, it, even today, right. If you're to look around, um, the, the churches with the apostolic succession. So you've got, you know, Rome in the West, you've got Constantinople, you've got, uh, of course, Alexandria and Antioch, all we've already mentioned, but even um, like the Assyrian church of the East, um, you've got yeah. the, uh, the Armenians, right? The Armenian apostolic church, uh -huh. um, the modern day Copts, which would be the Alexandrian Christian. They all have their own versions of the minor orders not all of them are numerated the same way right right um not all of them have exorcists as a minor order for example um but they all have them they all have minor orders so that would that would lead us really to the conclusion that the minor orders um because it's it's attested to so early in the thing we just read and a fortiori, its utter universal practice would lead us to conclude that it is perhaps not apostolic because of the letters that you mentioned, the even earlier ones that don't mention it, but sort of, we might say, maybe quasi-apostolic or pseudo-apostolic, um, where we might say, if the apostles were alive to see the spread of Christianity uh, by the time the minor orders did arise, they would mm -hmm. be sanctioned by the apostles. Um, it would have been something they uh, would would have done. Uh, yeah, I think we would. I mean, we might say that it's you know it's a it's a venerable tradition. Yeah, right? and, yeah. Um, and for various practical reasons, probably the apostolic church saw fit to um to to do this thing right mm -hmm. i mean th this was the this was a thing that uh that that the church saw fit to do at a very early stage and yeah. widely yep um so right, even though they're they're it, what exactly the different ones are is yeah. that varies from from region to region but that right. there is such a category of ministry yep uh is that's that's universal until until very recently in mm -hmm. uh, in history. Yep. So um, 
So let's ask the question, um, why, why do we have, the, why do we call them, um, why do we call them minor orders as opposed to just, to just functions or something? What, yeah. what, what do you think is going on there? Yeah. So it, it seems, I think in answering that question, um, you know, we, we talk about lex orandi, lex credendi. Um, and then a lot of times people add the, that third one on there, lex vivendi. Uh-huh. So the, the law of uh, praying, lex orandi, is the law, uh, the lex credendi, the law of believing. So how we pray um, is an indication of what we believe. And then lex vivendi, we could even say, uh, if you take a look at what we, uh, how we live, the law of living is also an indication of, of how we believe. So um, with that sort of hermeneutic, that sort of interpretive lens, maybe, mm-hmm. we would see a very strong connection between the minor orders as non-sacramental ministries and uh, roles with the major orders, specifically with the diaconate. So St. Thomas Aquinas, um, I'm, I'm aware that he says this, and I just haven't done the research to know if anybody else does, but um, he will say that the minor orders uh, are, their roles are roles that are, that are contained in the diaconate. Uh-huh. So that as we sort of spell out those different ones, porter, lector, exorcist, acolyte, subdeacon, um, that those are all roles that are included, sort of packaged in the package deal, quote unquote, of the diaconate. And then over time, they were uh, just listed as separate things. Um, so to, to frame it like in terms of these are things that an ordained man is called to do, right? Like the deacon is the one who's supposed to do these things ordinarily. Uh-huh. Um, it, it pertains to the sacrament of orders to do them. Um, so I think firstly, we need to make that uh, sort of highlight distinction of the, yeah, the connection between the minor orders and the major orders. Like you can't separate them. Um, like a difference, another distinction we could say would be the, uh, exorcist right um is one i like to give if the exorcist is connected and in some way participates in the ministry of the deacon uh-huh. it's it pertains to the exorcist to pray deliverance prayers so you can have the exorcist pray deliverance prayers over you as option a or option b you can ask like your buddy right hey can you pray some deliverance prayers over me that's option b um it seems to me that like the sense of the faith, the census fidei that, that we all have mm-hmm. would incline us to ask the exorcist to pray the deliverance prayers rather than your friend um, because of his connection to the sacrament, right? So he doesn't receive himself a sacrament, right? We, the church doesn't have the authority to institute new sacraments. Um, but we do understand this, this, and this is what I think we can tease out here is what is the connection? What's the connection between the minor order and the, the diaconate? 
um, the thing that pertains to the sacrament itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, to, to, to answer that question a little bit, you know, I, I think it's an open question, but yeah. Um, but I think one of the things to note about the deacon is that, is that historically widespread throughout the church, right? And for a very long period of time, the deacon has been associated with the Levitical priesthood. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that, you know, the typical, the typical uh, member of our audience today may not have any awareness of at all, right? Because Unless in, they go to uh, the Easter Vigil. What's that? Unless you go to the Easter Vigil, that's right. It, but it could pass yeah. you by. It could. Right, but but that part where he says um who has counted me wor uh worthy to number me among the levites yeah the deacon yeah. chanting the exultet right and the deacon and only the deacon can say that part yep. right yep so um so it's a weird weird right yep i mean because you would expect what is he, a levitical priest um is he offering does the deacon secretly offer right, like these animal sacrifices no no the, the idea is that this is that the sacrifices that pertained to the Levitical priesthood have since been transcended in the new covenant. And so he doesn't offer them. Mm -hmm. Right. But the idea is that um, he, he's a priest in that way. Right. He's still set apart kind of a priest, uh, not by lineage, right? Because the, Le the Levitical priesthood was actually passed by lineage. Yeah. But um but you know, in 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 through grace, right? He he is a priest in that way, mm -hmm. in the way that he points entirely toward the Eucharist, yeah. right? Uh, and so, and he not, he, but he can't celebrate it. Yeah, he's at the altar participating in the sacrifice of the Eucharist because the sacrifice is proper to him as Levite, pointed in that direction. Yeah. That's my understanding of it, right? I mean, this yeah. is it's a it's an it's a part of the history of the church that yeah. we have talked about the deacons as as Levites. As Levites. So how how are you connecting the deacon as Levite to minor orders? Yeah, so there's no part of being a, a member of the minor orders that that um allow that that he, that puts one in that kind of a relationship exactly. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yep. Um they're they're more like functionaries um they're they're sort of like functionaries of 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 the diaconal uh responsibilities vis-a-vis -vis care of the faithful or something but not mm -hmm. um but they don't have really anything to do with that that um sacrificial dimension does that make any sense yeah um, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this response. I'm, I'm speculating, yeah, but playing around with it. Yeah. I mean, that seems sort of connected to like the idea of the deacon being in the ministry of service that um, there is a functional aspect to the role of the deacon, but that it's, it's functional, but more than that, because he is still connected um, to Christ. Like he, he does receive a share in in Christ's uh, ministry on earth mm -hmm. in some way or another. And so um, that would be, I think the sort of distinction that we want to toy out between um, the minor orders as orders, right? Connected to a sacrament 
and the mere function right. that they perform. Right. So also so the, like, the the deacon the deacon is a corporate person. Yes. In his sacramental ministry, right? Yep. Yep. In other words, like a priest, mm-hmm. this is basically what priesthood involves: being yeah. a corporate person. Yeah. In such a way that that you you take the whole community up into yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's a that's part of traditional. That, by the way, that's traditional in the language of Ignatius of Antioch. When you go mm-hmm. back to his letters, Re, yeah. his whole ecclesiology, yeah, right, passes through the um, through the ordained ministers, mm-hmm. through and through the Eucharist. Yeah, right. Well, see the guy on on uh, recapitulation. That whole like idea of recapitulation in christ or my yeah he's totally else? in line now i mean i associate with that 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 whole idea of recapitulation with both um with both um you know john the author of the gospel right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh and, and also saint paul um yeah the idea of being the body of christ and all this right kind of, everything right. comes together under yeah. under christ as head yeah yes right? right it's it's headship theology for me yeah that's what right. it means to be head is is to in your singular person uh, somehow, you know, maybe we would say mystically, or um, you know, in theology we may say mystically, or in philosophy maybe we'll say like metaphysically, somehow contain other people uh, like in your singular person, or like you represent everybody on your own. Yeah, it's very strange, but it's yeah. very much. It's very, it's very biblical. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Adam. Right. The whole, how, yeah, the Adamic that typology. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, how, Paul builds on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you think about as a Levitical priest, the deacon is a corporate person. Yep. The none of the none of the minor orders can say that. Right. And uh, we were talking about this earlier too. Um, the uh, the tradition of calling deacon father deacon which mm-hmm. exists in uh in some of the eastern churches and uh as you were saying in in some monasteries in the west as well yeah um the idea of of course father being the the corporate person we call him father because he is able to be a corporate person he is a corporate person so the um so there's a connection to the sacrament right yeah and um but it's not a sacrament right and this is one of the hard things i think for people to understand about catholic thought it's it's hard for catholics to understand right yeah we have these things called sacraments and the way that term has come to be used uh you know i mean look we can we can have all kinds of interesting arguments about um you know uh when did the word sacrament sacramentum in latin right when did that come to mean what we mean by it today well that's a that's an interesting discussion but given that we know what we mean by it now what i want to know is uh we've we've refined our definition of the term sacrament right Mm -hmm. um so that now when we use it we use it with great precision that wasn't always true but we're still identifying the same realities yeah do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. A, a looser definition doesn't necessarily mean that we had a looser concept. Right. All right. We refined the definition to deal more precisely with our concepts. So, um, so we have this distinction today between sacrament, 
and sacramental. Yeah. There are a lot of sacramentals, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The idea would be that the sacramental, well, okay, let's back up a minute though, because a sacrament is what? A visible sign of uh, an invisible grace is one definition of people. Right. Yeah. Um, in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, the, uh, an outward sign that communicates grace. Another yeah. definition. Um, but a sacramental is more like a thing which having been blessed, which itself means set aside for holy use, mm -hmm. um, can now be a sort of channel of grace itself, but not in the same sense that a sacrament can, right? Because yeah, we weird. would say the sacraments are ex operate operato, right? By the right. working word. That, um, so that, that's, an import, that's an important part of the whole discussion, right? Is right. What we say about the way sacraments actually work. Yeah. Whereas a sacramental, like I can have my rosary bless and it's a sacramental. Um, and, uh, you know, as most of our audience might know, once you get a thing blessed, you are not to throw it away, right? Yeah, it's a holy object. It's a you holy object. Yep. Yep. You uh, bury it usually is, is one thing most people do. Um, much like we do bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are set aside for holy use at baptism, at confirmation, anytime we receive a blessing. Um, but they're not like sort of infallible means of grace either. Not like a sacrament is. We don't know that God is going to give grace through those things. Like we do know that God gives grace to the sacraments. And we don't know exactly how he's going to use these things like we do know, like we can identify what graces are given in which particular sacrament, but we don't know exactly what graces he's going to choose to give through any particular sacramental. Yeah. So you would say though, that, that, that there's, so the, the minor, the person in minor orders, right. Yeah. Is at least in the exercise of the minor order, kind of like a sacramental. Kind of. Analogous, yeah. right? I would say maybe, yeah, I don't, I, again, working this out, but sort of like a sacramental, yeah, that he's not a sacrament, but he is a means of grace. Yeah. In some way or another. In, like in he, the performance of the function the church has set aside for, yes. for him to be responsible for doing, right? Right. Such that there is a difference between him doing his thing and uh, as an ordained, you know, or maybe well, we not, put air yeah, quotes see, around it, but yeah, well, he is orders, ordained orders, whatever. Uh, as you know, so going back to that exorcist example, there's a difference between the exorcist praying the deliverance prayer and Joe Schmo praying a deliverance prayer. Um, you want the exorcist because of this, him being a sacramental or quasi sacramental. Um, in his in his own person because um, he himself yeah. is in a certain sense the church doing something right the church as church yeah. doing something right i think you might you might give that kind of an explanation yeah which gets back yeah. to the corporate personality thing yeah although he himself isn't right right but behind him is the church is acting yeah in um, but in virtue of his of that connection to the sacrament of holy orders yeah. So, right. so let's talk about this. So this is an, this is, 
you know, there's um, there's theology here yet to be done, right? A lot, I think. Yeah, um, but but let's look at the matter from this point of view. We're getting we're getting a little long. Um, yeah. Here, this conversation can go on, but um, but I want to look toward the reason why in the past the um, the minor orders have been, if they're not major orders, right? Mm-hmm. Why have the minor orders been restricted to men? Yeah. So this yeah, is kind so, of where we're we're getting up against this problem with Francis. Yeah. Yep. The foreshadowing. Um, again, I think it goes back to the connection with orders. Um, if if to dispense grace in a particular way belongs to a man particularly and not a woman Uh um, then to participate in that as the minor orders participate in the diaconate uh, it would seem to be the case that that also needs to be a person capable of of doing the same thing you know, does that make sense? Like, I do. L- l- let me approach it from another point of view. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. Make... Okay, so um, I would probably turn the thing in the other direction, which would be to to turn it toward the altar. Mm-hmm. What we have with the trajectory of the minor orders historically has been that they've been associated with entrance into the clerical state, right? And which ultimately means... Uh, a life dedicated to service of the church, ultimately as a, uh, as a participant in major orders, right? So I think historically yeah. speaking, I'm, I can't say that I'm 100% sure about this, right? And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone really knows. Yeah. But at least as far as it has come to be the case, um as it had come to be the case in the West from a fairly early date, these ministries came to be part of the um, induction of a person into the ordained ministry, the properly ordained ministry. Yeah. So you're coming out of like a sort of like a final cause kind of argument. Like these things are ordered towards a thing which only men can have. So it's, uh, fitting that only men have the things ordered to the other. Yeah, why, why, are, why are you walking down this path if you know that at the end of the hallway is a door through which you cannot pass? Yeah. Right. That's kind of the question. And, um, and I, I think that that is possibly um at least part of the reason that historically these ministries have, have been reserved to men. Yeah. I think that's definitely part of the reason too. I mean, think about the people who like first instituted these things like in, you know, yeah. 150 or so, yeah. whenever you were saying, um, you've got a, a Bishop sitting there with a deacon next to him. And the deacon is like, man, I just, I don't have time to like do the doors. Like I've got too much other stuff going on. I don't have time to do this. What's the bishop going to do? Um, he or think he might think something like, "Well, who can you trust? Who can you trust?" But also, like, 
to to have the function of like doorkeeper porter uh-huh. um like belongs to an ordained man to an ordained yeah. person a man well it goes to the power of the keys right i mean like who comes in who goes out right it pertains to the power of the keys so if you're going to think of the porter just using that as one example um as participating in the sacrament right like maybe he like receives some like part of the sacrament i don't know i don't know how that works um i don't know but he receives uh, a charge to perform a task from the person to whom that task belongs yeah Um, but in the same way right like maybe we wouldn't want to say this, but it, it would also kind of be like, it doesn't make a difference whether you have the exorcist doing the exercising or the acolyte, right? Like the guy that, who's the, just like the next step up um, or maybe even the deacon, like the, in as much as they're both charged with deliverance prayers, the exorcist oh. and the deacon. The exorcist is doing in his minor exorcisms everything that the deacon could do he's not doing anything less like the deacon is giving him his full authority of deliverance prayers or his full authority to open and close the door to the church as porter um whatever else you know what i mean like it's not he's not like giving him a part of his authority to perform exorcism uh deliverance prayers Uh it's like the whole thing like do you want the exorcist or the deacon? I don't care. Do you want the exorcist or the layman? No, I want the exorcist. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So let me give you some perspective here on the primitive church and how it differs from today, which might help us to understand, um, again, this tradition, right, of reserving these things for men. Well, the... Today, people kind of decide to become priests, right? They yeah. decide they want to enter into the seminary, and then they yep. go and have a sit down with the bishop, and they come to terms with this. But yeah, um, but back in the primitive church, it wasn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. People were literally called, yeah. right? I mean, like <laughs> some were dragged in chains. <laughs> yeah, some were dragged in chains. So, like. What we're talking about is these were the men of the church who were gradually picked, right? Chosen to be, um, to be given these responsibilities. Yep. And from among those men, some would be chosen to enter into major orders. Yep. Um, So it's not about you deciding this or that. And for that reason, because the whole logic of it historically traces back to who is being called right to into the sacramental ministry. Uh, I think it makes sense for us to say that these functions can only be performed by men. Does that make sense? It's not an ontological thing, but given the connection. Um, I would say it makes sense that, it's uh, that your argument is a good fitting this argument whereas i think it used to be considered a very strong argument (laughs) i well theologically yes but it's not a good ontological argument for me 
I, I not, would not. Yeah, so I'm not making an ontological argument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a fittingness argument, um, for sure. I mean, we talk about fittingness arguments with respect to the Immaculate Conception, and, and that seems to work. Um, but for disciplinary matters, fittingness, um, right? Like uh, minor orders would be a disciplinary thing. It's a canonical thing. We can do away with them, and we have. Um, but I, want, I my focus is it would be more on the ontological part of it, actually, where we have this connection, uh, and there's this connection with like grace, like the minor orders, like the exorcist isn't just your buddy doing deliverance prayers. It's like yeah, I get the it. You're dude with trying the backing to argue that you're trying to church. argue that there actually is a difference in in what's being done or, or in yeah. how what's being done affects the outside world. Right. Which is why we're calling the people in minor orders, the men in minor orders, like a, a sacramental of sorts, right? Because they are yeah. like the unblessed rosary is different than a blessed rosary. Yeah. Right. Like I would rather pray with the blessed rosary than the unblessed rosary, even right. though they look the same on the outside and I'm going to pray the same prayers on each rosary or, you know, whatever else. Yeah. Um, and it's because, for me, of that connection with the sacrament, that getting back to that gender question, that like everything you're saying, yes, and then more so because um, it takes a man to participate in a thing reserved only to men. Yeah. So, um, so I think you got to mash these two things up together. Mm-hmm. and ask yourself why does that pertain we're really long we're long on time so we're not going to get into this discussion but but you know if you ask yourself why uh does this thing pertain only to men i think the answer to that question is kind of bound up in 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 the fittingness argument sure because oh yeah they build on each other to the altar yeah and 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 the altar is is reserved to men right uh, so you, you get what i'm saying yeah yeah, yeah um yeah so anyway, that this is a great discussion, but we have more, we not do. today, but we do have more. Um, next time, we have two more of the, of conversations we're going to have. We hinted right, at so them. Next time, already. we're going to talk about Paul VI and when he decided to um, suppress the minor orders in the Latin Rite. And then we're finally going to get to Pope Francis, motu proprio, uh, opening up the ministries of lector and acolyte to women. All right. So this is part of a long conversation and you've heard part one. Don't forget to like and subscribe and to share and to ask to be notified of future content. So Tyler, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we're looking forward to having you next time. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait.